This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Caleb, Noah, Sam, Emmalyn, Amara, and Sam. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll start with a few serious questions. Since this episode is being released on Grace's 11th anniversary, a couple of these questions are connected to preaching. But first, here's a question about Jesus' family from Caleb. Caleb asks, Did Jesus have any sisters? I know he had brothers. Well, Caleb, it's an interesting question. There are four men, as you mentioned, who are identified at various points in the New Testament as the brothers of Jesus. But what that means exactly is open to debate. Some people argue that these men are younger brothers. Technically, they'd be half-brothers of Jesus born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. But other people say, when you look how disrespectful these brothers are towards Jesus during his earthly ministry, that's not really something permitted uh, by younger brothers towards older brothers in that culture. And that suggests that maybe these are older brothers. Maybe Joseph was a widower who had sons from before his marriage to Mary, and so Jesus had these older half-brothers who didn't take him very seriously. We just don't know. But that's not your question. You asked about sisters, and it turns out there is one verse in the Bible that makes it sound like Jesus did have sisters. If you look in your Bible at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown, to Nazareth, and begins a ministry there, but the people there are really skeptical about Jesus. They say, and this is in Mark 6, verses 2 and 3, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Now, the ending of that quote, are not his sisters here with us, it sound like Jesus did have sisters. Since the word they're using is plural, it seems that there had to be at least two women in Nazareth who were referred to as sisters of Jesus. Now, one thing scholars will be quick to tell you is that when words like sister and brother are used in ancient documents like this, it's not always the case that what's what's meant is blood relation, like literal brothers and sisters, the way that we think of sometimes cousins or members of the household might be included in a term like that. So again, we can't be positive. But if you look at Mark 6, it seems pretty clear that there were at least two women who were identified as sisters of Jesus. Now Noah has a good question about preaching. He asks, Are you nervous before you preach a sermon? Well, Noah, you've got to understand, I preached my first sermon about 20 years ago, and 
in that time, I've also been a teacher, a public speaker for most of that time. Uh, I can't even count how many times I've been in front of audiences, uh, big audiences, small audiences, uh, a lot of experience in speaking. And to be perfectly honest with you, I hate it. I really hate having to get up in front of people. It makes me nervous to, to get up in front of an audience, to have everyone looking at me. All of the things that, that people talk about, all of the fears that they have about public speaking, I feel those things too. And I've never gotten over that reluctance. Uh, if I could avoid it, I would. But preaching isn't like any other kind of public speaking. And even though I'm always nervous when I get into the pulpit, it's also a profound honor and I, I try never to take it lightly. So yes, I do get nervous even now, every time I have to get up and preach. But to be honest, I think I should be nervous. I think everyone who preaches the word of God should be nervous because leading the congregation in worship like that is the most important task I'll ever undertake, right? So I should be aware of that, should be in awe of that, and I am. But at the same time, I also love it, and I hope that comes through as well, that that love overshadows any nervousness that I feel. Finally, Sam is curious about how long I've been preaching. He asks, how many years have you preached at Grace? Okay, so let's do a little bit of math here, Sam. So this episode is coming out on February the 14th, 2021. And today is officially the fourth anniversary since I was ordained and installed as Grace's pastor. That was in 2017. So it's been four years now. But even before that, from about the middle of 2015, until early 2017, even though I was still a ruling elder, I was preaching at Grace Weekly. Now, I could do that because I'd already been licensed by our presbytery, and that's one of the requirements for preaching regularly in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, the reason that I was licensed is that if you go back a little bit further in time, for about a year, starting in 2010, I had to fill in while we were searching for a pastor. So to answer the question, how many years have I preached at Grace? Off and on, I've been preaching at Grace since 2010, and that's the year that Grace became a self-governing church. So 11 years and counting. Uh, Grace is 11 years old today, and off and on, I've been preaching at Grace for those 11 years. Now it's time for the big question. This time our big question comes from Emmeline. It's about the way God raised up prophets in the Old Testament. Here's the question. Why did God send two prophets when he could have just sent one? He could have sent just Haggai instead of Zechariah as well. Great question, Emmeline. Right now, of course, at Grace, we're in a sermon series on the prophet Zechariah. But for context, before we began on Zechariah, I went back and taught the book of Haggai because their two ministries overlapped in terms of their timeline. Haggai was a prophet for just four months, but before he finished, Zechariah began. 
And so they were contemporaries. They were in the same place at the same time, and they were both called to prophesy by God. In fact, Zechariah's original prophetic oracle sounds a lot like what Haggai was saying. Of course, after that, uh, Zechariah had his night visions, and his prophecy starts to sound a little bit different. Now, it definitely would be simpler if all the prophecies were combined in one book by just one prophet. So it makes sense to ask, why did God send two? Well, obviously, we can't know questions like this for certain. Whenever we speculate about why did God do this, why didn't he do that, um, we can never really be sure. But there are some clues that, that can help us think about this. So first of all, in Zechariah chapter 2, Zechariah is described by the angel as a young man. But when you look at Haggai, many scholars believe that Haggai was probably an old man, much older than Zechariah. And this might actually be the reason why his ministry ends after just four months. It could be that he was prophesying at the end of his life and that he died at the end of his prophetic ministry. He could have been one of those people who was old enough to have seen the original temple. And if that's true, then Haggai's words to the returned exiles, when he talks about the glory of that original temple compared to the, the humble temple that they were reconstructing, those words would have extra weight if they were coming from an older man who had seen those former glories and could sympathize. So. That's one possibility why God would have both Haggai and Zechariah uh, ministering at the same time. But also, if you look just in general at the prophets, at the way that God raises up prophets over time in the Old Testament, it's not actually unusual to see them overlapping. Like we tend to think of Old Testament prophets uh, in, a, in a pretty peculiar way. We think of them as coming kind of one at a time, maybe one after another, but that's not really the way it worked. Sometimes there were several prophets, multiple prophets prophesying all at once. Sometimes you might have a prophet active in the northern kingdom and at the same time another prophet active in the south. Some prophets would serve, like Haggai, for just a short period of time. Others seem to have prophesied at different periods throughout their entire lives. Some prophets wrote their prophecies down, and there are other prophets we know by name, but we have no idea really what their prophetic ministry consisted of. And there are others whose ministry we only know because other people recorded their words and their work. Now, there's also an idea that we have sometimes about the Old Testament prophets, that they were kind of like cowboys, that they were Lone rangers out in the wilderness, always doing their own thing. There's a kernel of truth in some of this. It's true that because of their faithfulness to God's word, the prophets often endured a lot of hardship. But even when they were alone, they, they weren't flying solo. They were always part of a larger plan, a larger work of God. And you see that in the consistency of the word that they proclaimed from God. It all fit together. In fact, if you think about that aspect of the prophets, they start sounding a lot like the apostles. Like Jesus, he could have chosen just one right-hand man, just one guy to carry out his vision, but 
that's not how the church works. Instead, God raises up different leaders. They work hand in hand together. They don't speak for themselves. They all commit themselves to what God has spoken. Now, some may become preeminent. Others may have uh, like, like big reputations and be very famous, while some are more modest, some you've never heard of before. Just like the apostles, some apostles we know almost nothing about what they did, and others, of course, are, are quite famous. But at the same time, it's significant that Jesus assembles a, a group of apostles, that the early church assembles groups of elders, that the task of leadership, the task of proclamation, is never just in one set of hands. Even in the case of Moses, he's accompanied by Aaron. So this suggests something about the way that God speaks, because God wants you to take his word seriously and take it seriously as his word. He never just entrusts it to one messenger. He's always working through a variety of people, and often at the same time. There's one more thing. Sometimes it helps the truth sink in if you're hearing it from multiple sources. For example, you know, if your dad says, okay, this is the way it is, you might say to yourself, well, that's what he thinks, but maybe he's wrong. But if your mom and your dad both say the same thing, then that's the way it is. Works the same way with the prophets. You might be able to ignore one prophet or, thinking in Old Testament terms, even kill one prophet. But God sends another one with the same message. And eventually you realize that thus saith the Lord means that's the way it is. Emmeline, it's a great question. I can't answer with any certainty why God chose exactly to send the two prophets he did and overlap the way that he did. But hopefully some of these thoughts help to contextualize the way that God works and, and also remind all of us that God is never putting all of his eggs in one basket, that he's giving all of us gifts in the body of Christ and, and expects all of us to be faithful in using them. Before we wrap up this episode, let's answer a few fun questions. Here's one from Caleb. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? This is an easy one for me because as a kid, there was always one thing I wanted to do, and that was to be a garbage man. But the reason is in my neighborhood, the garbage men, when the truck came through, always got to ride on the outside. They would be on a running board on the truck, holding onto the rail, kind of hanging sideways off the truck as they rolled down the street. And I thought that was really cool. And because I was never allowed even to stick my hand out the window when I was in the car, I thought there could be nothing better when I grow up than to be a garbage man and I can ride on the outside of the truck. Eventually, though, I realized that my calling in life was not to be a garbage man. And so within a few years, I, I, I'd given up on that dream and started working on becoming a ninja, or at least a spy. Now, Amara has a question about my writing. She wants to know, are any of the books you've written okay for kids to read? 
Now, if you're listening to this and you didn't know already, in addition to being a pastor, I'm also a writer. In particular, I write crime novels. But because those novels are pretty realistic and full of murder, you should probably check with your parents before trying to read one of those. They're, they're definitely aimed for an older, more mature audience. But I have written a nonfiction book called Rethinking Worldview, and that one is fine to read at any age. Our final question in this episode is about communion, and it comes from Sam. Sam asks, why does the communion bread feel and taste like styrofoam? Well, <laughs> this is a question that we've gotten a lot of. So, as you know, Grace practices weekly communion. That means in every Sunday morning service after the sermon, we kind of end the service by coming forward for communion. Now, before the pandemic, that's what we did. We would all come forward to receive the elements, the bread and the cup. But now during the pandemic, to, to minimize the contact in our services, we've been using these prepackaged communion elements. And I've made no secret of the fact that I do not like these. I do not like having to use them. Uh, at the same time, I'm really grateful that they exist so that we can continue to celebrate communion, even now, in a way that minimizes the risks involved. Now, the reason that the prepackaged wafers felt and tasted like styrofoam was that they were styrofoam. No, I'm just kidding. They weren't really styrofoam. Although, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if they turned out to be styrofoam, because I agree. Not only did they look like styrofoam and feel like styrofoam, but, but they tasted like styrofoam. At least, they tasted like I think styrofoam would taste if you ate it, which I have not done, uh, and I haven't even chewed it since I was little. Okay, that's the reason why, even though we're still using prepackaged communion elements, we switched from the old ones to the new ones. And so the last few weeks, you've probably been able to tell a difference because now the elements in communion really taste like what they're supposed to taste like because they really are the thing that they're supposed to be. As good as that is though, I will be happy to go back to doing it the regular way just as soon as we are able. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.